Envision this. You are a primary care physician in a busy group practice, and you are seeing a 49-year-old man with type 2 diabetes as a follow-up patient. He has had diabetes for 15 years, and he's very inconsistent with the use of his prescribed insulin. The patient shares. It's tough stopping for lunch and giving myself injections when work is busy. Sometimes I skip a dose or two. But I'm not worried. I check my sugar in the morning, and it's always 200. His examination is within normal limits, except for a blood pressure of 142 over 94, a hemoglobin A1C value of 8.9%, and he has 366 milligrams albumin per gram of creatinine on his yearly urine study. Welcome to Audio Bricks. This is Ed Barnes breaking down diabetic nephropathy in your ears. After completing this section, you will be able to 1. Define diabetic nephropathy. 2. Describe the pathogenesis and progression of diabetic nephropathy using urine, serum, and histologic criteria. 3. Discuss how to diagnose diabetic nephropathy. 4. Outline the prevention of diabetic nephropathy. And 5. Describe the management of diabetic nephropathy and how to slow its progression. Part 1. What is diabetic nephropathy? Diabetes mellitus is an endocrine disorder in which the body either doesn't make enough insulin, that's type 1, or can't respond to insulin, that's type 2, or both. Regardless of the type of diabetes a patient has, the underlying problem is that glucose has a hard time getting into the cells, and as a result, blood glucose levels are elevated. The consequences of this deranged glucose metabolism are numerous and often dangerous. Complications of diabetes mellitus are typically categorized as microvascular, like nephropathy, neuropathy, or retinopathy, or macrovascular, like coronary artery disease, peripheral artery disease, or stroke. As mentioned, diabetic nephropathy is one of the microvascular complications of diabetes mellitus. Diabetic nephropathy is a progressive chronic kidney disease seen in patients with both type 1 and type 2 diabetes mellitus, usually after at least 10 years of hyperglycemia, that's high blood glucose levels. These patients classically present with various degrees of albuminuria, Diabetes can affect both the glomerulus and the blood vessels in the kidney. We will discuss the classic pathologic findings that are observed on renal biopsy a bit later. Part 2. What are the pathogenesis and the progression risk factors of diabetic nephropathy? Increased blood sugar due to diabetes can lead to non-enzymatic glycosylation, or NEG, of the blood vessels and tissues. This refers to when sugars attach to extracellular matrix proteins and disrupt normal cellular functions, including in the renal glomeruli, which are the tiny tufts or capillaries that are the site of blood filtration in the kidneys. Measuring hemoglobin A1c can help you both diagnose and track the progression of diabetes. It is based on the degree of non-enzymatic glycosylation of the hemoglobin molecule. The more hemoglobin that is glycosylated, the more likely the patient will develop complications, like diabetic nephropathy. If you recall, the blood enters the glomerulus via the afferent arterioles. 
like the an arrives, equals afferent, and exits via the efferent arterioles, like the en exit and efferent. The blood is filtered through the glomerulus with the goal of excreting waste products in the urine. The glomerular basement membrane, or GBM, is one of the primary components of this filtration barrier and is disrupted by long-standing diabetes. Non-enzymatic glycosylation causes thickening of the GBM and also diminishes the charge barrier of the glomerulus, which makes it more permeable to proteins. This allows albumin, the most prevalent serum protein in the body, to pass through the membrane and leak into the urine. Initially, as microalbuminuria, which is 30 to 300 milligrams urinary loss per day. Once this value is greater than 300 milligrams of urinary loss per day, the proteinuria worsens, eventually leading to proteinuria of more than 3,500 milligrams per day, and what is also called nephrotic range proteinuria. Let's stop for a quick quiz. How much albumin in the urine? in a 24-hour period, represents microalbuminuria. 30 to 300 milligrams urinary loss per day represents microalbuminuria. In the efferent and afferent arterioles, non-enzymatic glycosylation occurs with leakage of amorphous proteinaceous material into the vessel walls. Over time, this process leads to thickening of the vessel walls, termed hyaline arteriolosclerosis. You will observe a thickened arterial wall with large deposits of smooth pink gum-like material on light microscopy with hematoxylin and eosin staining, also known as H&E staining. This process targets the efferent arterioles first. The result is increased resistance of blood flowing through the efferent arterioles. The blood backs up in the glomerulus, which leads to an initial increase in the glomerular filtration rate, or GFR. This is called hyperfiltration. Although this hyperfiltration may seem beneficial, it can lead to interglomerular hypertension and eventually to glomerular damage and sclerosis. As the sclerosis progresses over time, the GFR begins to decrease, causing an increase in serum creatinine and eventually an increase in the blood urea nitrogen, or BUN. People with diabetes are commonly prescribed an angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor or an angiotensin receptor blocker because they block the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 causes efferent arterial constriction. Blocking the conversion prevents the efferent arterial from constricting, which prevents the buildup of pressure in the glomerular capillary, and this helps prevent the glomerular sclerosis and damage to the kidneys in people with diabetes. Let's pause for another quiz question. Which arterial does the non-enzymatic glycosylation affect first? The non-enzymatic glycosylation affects the efferent arterial first. This is why GFR initially increase and leads to hyperfiltration injury. Histologically, the progression from normal kidney to diabetic nephropathy follows a predictable pattern of change. 
First, the glomerular basement membrane thickens. Then, the glomerular mesangial cells proliferate, and they lay down more matrix proteins, so the surrounding mesangium begins to expand. This eventually leads to the formation of nodules known as Kimmelstein-Wilson nodules, which appear as a thick marble-shaped pink material in the lumen of the glomerular capillaries with the H&E staining on light microscopy. In addition to glomerular damage, Proteinaceous material is deposited within the walls of the arterioles, which reduces the lumen size and disrupts blood flow. Let's try another quiz question before moving on. What classic histological finding is seen in diabetic nephropathy? Kimmelstein-Wilson nodules are seen in diabetic nephropathy and are a classic finding. Part 3 how is diabetic nephropathy diagnosed? As mentioned earlier, diabetic nephropathy can occur in both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, generally after a decade or more of poor glycemic control. Most patients are initially asymptomatic, but as the disease progresses, they may develop edema, hypertension, or frothy urine, which is a consequence of protein in the urine. Eventually, they may develop signs of uremia, like itching, confusion, and anorexia, which is an indication that there is a need for dialysis because of advanced kidney failure. The hallmark of an early diagnosis includes the finding that we discussed earlier, the presence of microalbuminuria, which is a value of 30 to 300 milligrams of albumin in the urine per 24 hours. It is critical to diagnose diabetic nephropathy in the early stage because it can be reversed at this point by using angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or ACE inhibitors and improving glucose control. The albuminuria is detected using either a 24-hour urine collection, which can be cumbersome, or a spot specimen that measures urine, albumin, and creatinine concentrations. The ratio of albumin and creatinine approximates the result of the 24-hour collection, so it is now the test that is done most often. This ratio should be checked yearly in all patients with diabetes to screen for early diabetic nephropathy. Please note that the urine dipstick is not a substitute for these tests. It is too insensitive to pick up microalbuminuria. Now, if diabetic nephropathy has progressed, there will be macroalbuminuria of more than 300 mg per 24 hours, and protein excretion can go much higher over time, sometimes exceeding 3,500 to 5,000 mg per day. Again, this is called nephrotic syndrome or nephrotic range proteinuria. BUN and serum creatinine should be measured during the evaluation and it is used to calculate the estimated GFR. There should be normal glomerular filtration as measured by the EGFR and normal overall kidney function at the onset of diabetic nephropathy. The BUN and creatinine only increase after progression of the disease as shown by several years of worsening proteinuria. Serum electrolytes should also be checked since hyperkalemia and metabolic acidosis may be seen in advanced diabetic nephropathy with progressive kidney failure. 
Unlike most glomerular diseases, renal biopsy is not needed to establish the diagnosis because the clinical pattern is so classic. Since biopsies only rarely show the other diseases, they are reserved for the most uncertain cases. Part 4. How is diabetic nephropathy prevented and treated? Remember, the central pathology of diabetic nephropathy is increased blood sugar. So good glycemic control is crucial for preventing non-enzymatic glycosylation and slowing progression of disease in patients diagnosed with diabetic nephropathy. Because non-enzymatic glycosylation only occurs when there are excessive amounts of sugar in the bloodstream, a medication regimen should be tailored to keep blood sugars within normal range, around 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. Most patients with diabetes should target a hemoglobin A1c of less than 7%. Besides achieving tight glycemic control, other potential factors that contribute to renal disease must be limited. Hypertension and diabetes act synergistically to accelerate nephropathy because hypertension also causes hyaline arteriolosclerosis. That is why it is especially important to treat hypertension in people with diabetes, because they are already at increased risk for renal disease. The blood pressure target is less than 130 over 90 millimeters per mercury. The best choice for antihypertensive medication in diabetic nephropathy is an ACE inhibitor or an ARB. These medications lead to vasodilation of the efferent arteriole, which reduces the extent of hyperfiltration injury lower proteinuria, and slows the progression of the disease. Care should be taken to avoid hyperkalemia in patients taking these drugs. Some diabetic patients may develop hyperkalemia because of low renin levels, leading to low aldosterone and low excretion of potassium by the kidney. ACE inhibitors and ARBs worsen this. They reduce aldosterone levels even more. If this happens, you can add a diuretic to increase potassium excretion or put the patient on a low-potassium diet. Despite optimal treatment, some patients progress to end-stage renal disease that requires dialysis or kidney transplantation. Prognosis is generally poor at this stage. Average life expectancy, once on dialysis, is only 5 years for diabetic patients. Death is usually from cardiovascular disease like myocardial infarction. Annual screening for other complications is important because diabetic nephropathy is a microvascular disease, which means it's often accompanied by other things like diabetic neuropathy and retinopathy. Other important preventive measures for all diabetic patients include lifestyle changes such as weight loss, lipid control, and smoking cessation. How about a quiz? What important synergistic factor must be addressed in the treatment of diabetic nephropathy? Hypertension should definitely be addressed in patients with diabetic nephropathy. Use an ACE inhibitor or an ARB because they are renal protective. And that brings us to the end of our discussion on diabetic nephropathy. Now, let's recap to see if we've completed our goals. First, 
Can you define diabetic nephropathy? Diabetic nephropathy is a microvascular complication of both type 1 and 2 diabetes that leads to chronic kidney disease and can be classically identified by varying degrees of albuminuria. Second, are you able to describe the glucose metabolic process that is central to the pathogenesis of diabetic nephropathy and its effects on the renal microvasculature? Non-enzymatic glycosylation plays a central role in the development of diabetic nephropathy. This process leads to thickened walls of the efferent arterioles and to a lesser degree the afferent arterioles. The efferent arteriolar damage leads to increased resistance and eventually hyperfiltration in the glomerular capillaries. Third, can you name the classic pathologic finding observed on light microscopy in the glomerular capillary lumen? The eventual damage to the glomerular capillaries can lead to the classic pathologic finding of proteinaceous material in the lumen of the capillaries, called Kimmelstein-Wilson nodules. Fourth, what are the three laboratory findings that we use to diagnose diabetic nephropathy? One, an increased urinary albumin to creatinine ratio. Two, an elevated serum creatinine. And three, an elevated blood urea nitrogen. Fifth, and finally, can you discuss the three cornerstone approaches that we implement to prevent the progression and treat diabetic nephropathy? One, glycemic control with a goal hemoglobin A1C of less than 7% for most patients. Two, hypertension management with a goal blood pressure of less than 130 over 90 millimeters per mercury. And three, the use of an ACE inhibitor or an ARB dilates the efferent arterioles, relieving the pressure on the glomerular capillaries and also treating systemic hypertension. And that's it. Armed with your newfound knowledge on diabetic nephropathy, let's get back to the patient from the beginning of this episode. You are seeing a 49-year-old man with type 2 diabetes that has poor glycemic control and elevated blood pressures. You have also found an elevated value of 366 milligrams per gram of creatinine on his urinary albumin to creatinine ratio assessment. You turn to explain the results to your patient. You tell him that his poor blood pressure and diabetic control are affecting his kidney function. But importantly, with better control, further damage can be prevented. You stress the importance of taking all of his medications as prescribed, and you start him on an ACE inhibitor. After one month at a follow-up visit, your patient proudly reports that his blood sugar is now 90 to 110 daily, and that his blood pressure is 118 over 72 millimeters per mercury. The patient smiles and states, Guess what, doc? I haven't missed taking any of my medications in over a month.
And that's it for our show. Make sure you like and subscribe if you like what you hear. And remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmole-rx.com. Complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time.